David Penn here, and welcome back to the Professor Penn Podcast. Please let me ask you to click the subscribe button, and if you like it, please let us know you like it. Uh, why? Because we're building a community. Uh, I'm involved in the political process, and it often pains me. Uh, it's, it's a labor of love. Uh, my sacrifice for the American community I belong to. These people are devious, and it's it's become very clear to me that if we have hope for our future, for our children's future, it's only going to be it will be because, it will solely be because. Let me try this one more time. If we have hope for our future and for our children's future, that hope is based solely on each one of us self-governing, getting involved and taking stewardship of the political process with the goal being the well-being of our community. Such a serious issue, but before we get into it, I want to start with a musical interlude which will brighten your day.
good saying. I'm going to take that out. Thank you so much. So that's uh, one of the great hits of that period of time. It's timeless. And uh, when you listen to the lyrics, uh, there's a lot of ways to interpret those lyrics. Uh, we have a, a, a song in which a man is, is consenting to be used because it feels so good. Well, that's not unlike our modern condition. We could draw an, a, a, we could draw a relationship there. We consent as the American people to be used because we get a material high out of our consent and safety. We are giving up our freedom for that material high and for our safety. And I don't know, you know, everything is kind of an experiment, right? You think about um, a little baby, they walk, they're crawling along, they put everything in their mouth. We're living in a, an experiment of human consciousness. And uh, I think that this, this uh, Professor Penn angle on it is I, I'm, I'm blessed with the ability to see things in a very kind of broad or holistic way. I don't know why. There's all kinds of intelligence. Uh, it really doesn't matter if it's cultural or genetic. It doesn't matter. That's another story that scientists have gotten us into to obscure the truth. What really matters is, is there's all kinds of brilliance, creativity. The creativity of that phenomenal voice, Bill Withers' voice, that's genius. It's genius. It's genius just like somebody that can do very high-level math or uh, a professional athlete. These, these are all kinds of intelligence, and we have kind of a scale. we got a feeling part of the, the yin part, and then we got the yang part, which is the, the thinking part, the manipulative part, the ability to manipulate the environment, the ability to feel the embar- environment, the feeling, being in harmony with the vi- environment, and being able to manipulate the environment. Okay, let's take a course correction. We've been on a 500-year, progressively more intellectualized, scientized, uh, mathematical brain, a thinking brain. Are we happy where we're at, America? Do we feel good? Are we satisfied with our condition? How does the future look to us? Perhaps we've gotten in this consciousness experiment a little out of balance. And I think uh, it's important that we know why it happened, in my opinion. That's another thing, history. You know, there's going to be a lot of historians that are going to jump up and say, where's your evidence? And I'm going to say, where's yours? Because history is a story. It's a tradition. It's an oral tradition which has been scientized and credentialized so that PhDs can say, well, the oral tradition is no longer valid. Well, it's all oral tradition that's now digitized. And let's not say that this digitized tradition is necessarily the one that's going to endure. Stories have been passed down from father to son and from mother to daughter for thousands of years. There was nothing wrong with that. We found a way to make it more efficient, which is the digitization of our stories. But what did we give up? Of course, our father edited every story he told me. My father was an editor when he told me the oral tradition of my ancestors 
He was an editor. It was between him and me. But now the story is getting edited by people we don't know, and don't, they do not love us. Many of us had fathers and mothers that didn't love us, but many of us had fathers and mothers that did love us. So when a loving parent passes on a tradition to a child, it's done with the best of intents. When unknown people control a digitized medium and they have no love of people, they're Darwinists. The stories we get told, we need to question. I'm not saying or making any comment that any, any story here or there is not true. I'm saying we need to be skeptical. And isn't that the essence of the scientific method to continually question? The scientific method is to be questioning. The intellectual method is to be questioning. The critical mind is always questioning. We don't believe our own bullshit. We question ourselves. We question everything around us. That's how we move forward with our consciousness. So how did we get here? Well, I said in the previous podcast that we had a, a scientific materialist uh, explosion after the Renaissance, and we also had a, a Marxist materialist explosion, you know, as part of the post-Enlightenment period. And these words, these are Infowar words, right? Renaissance sounds so great, right? Enlightenment. Who came up with that one? That's, that's marketing. Somebody came up with that in university for sure. They said all this stuff that came before, the old world order, the old world order based on the divine right of kings, we're going to say that that was all the dark ages. And the enlightenment came with scientific inquiry. Well, there we go. So we're in that post-scientific inquiry moment, and we have America, which has this soaring constitution about forming a more perfect union, about contributing and preserving the general welfare and tranquility, which is peace, and justice upon which peace rests. And the country got off to this start, and I said it's not. Slavery was the business model of the Europeans right from the start of the country. This kind of European business model came along with capitalism, which is a kind of freedom. Capitalism allowed people to escape their caste or where they were born in what was a feudal society with divine right of kings. People rebelled against the feudalism associated with the kings and their confederates, the church. So that's where a lot of this sentiment comes out of, rebelliousness, rebellion against a feudalistic system. And it's back, and we're going to have to rebel again. But that is the theme we're going to be developing and working on together because we have to see it to believe it. Now, this, this rebellion happened in Europe. We had people that came to this country for religious freedom. We had people that came here to pack, practice you know, the European business model slaves, slavery, right? Drugs, sugar at that time, piracy. And in those days, it was real piracy. They just went and took people's shit away from them, their lands, their lives. It was the period of colonization. And there were people in Europe that really suffered under this business model, this feudalist business model. And part of rebellion is 
We had a great immigration to this country because there was freedom here. The word there was freedom in America. Freedom! Come for freedom. You can participate in the great American dream. And people came in droves, droves. And the country was relatively, relatively unpopulated. And there was an immigration policy, which is something we can look at. And there was resistance to immigration. No different than today. But people came. And they came a lot from Europe. Starting in the, in the 1800s, the mid-1800s, there was huge waves of immigration. At the same time in Europe, there was huge unrest because the Industrial Revolution was underway and there was a huge disparity of wealth and you still had the, the kings and the queens of Europe and people started leaving. Well, downstream, 150 years. I just want to tell you, the smallest player to the medium player to the biggest players, and I want to go through some of them, I want you to know who these people are and how they fit in. But let's see what they generated. Could we play this candidate heckled on campus thing? Because this is where our students are at today. Good, thank you. Okay, that's a classroom. The classroom. The teacher was uh, chanting along with them. This was uh, some GOP or some conservative people coming into a classroom. They wanted to make a presentation. Boy, did they hit a group of cultists. Everybody's wearing a mask. Everybody's dressed the same. Everybody's saying the same thing. And they're calling conservatives fascists. So conservatism, which is part of, I would guess we'd have to say, white Christo-nationalism in these people's minds, this whole program is aimed at stifling a presentation from conservative people. This is not a classroom where I went to school. We had this leftism, we had this Darwinism, but we still had critical thinking, critical inquiry. We had um, never could anything like this have happened in a classroom. It could happen outside the classroom. But the classroom still had a sanctity, a, a sanct, a special, from an anthropological sense. When you walked in a classroom, you were quiet, you sat down, there was a ritual of sitting down, the teacher came in, that was ritualized. The whole classroom had the air of something special. It was a special place. It was a special place where people came to do special things, i.e., learning how to think critically. So this is where we're at. This is where our universities are at. How do we get there? Well, this because this is a foreign ideology. And when I say a foreign ideology, I don't mean that in a... It's a different ideology. And we live in a free world where ideologies are going to clash into each other. These are survival strategies. This is a survival strategy. It clashes with a traditional survival strategy. So how is this going to play out? That's what we're working on. And my theory of the case is what I'm saying to you, the, the listener and the viewer, 
Are you happy with the way this is looking? Do you see a bright, sunny future ahead of you? Is your life good? And I say this, and if you're going to say, well, you're watching this, so you probably know something's wrong. But I'm, there's a lot of people that for the material high and the safety and the perceived political value that they get by participating, they're going to say it's okay. And these people are really giving up a lot. They're giving up their critical thinking. They're giving up their forward thinking. Some people can see into the future. Some people can't. Not good or bad. It's the way it is. There's always been people from time immemorial that could look into the future and see where they, we called them prophets. And if the prophecies came true, they were respected. If the prophecies didn't come true, they were considered charlatans. But every prophet has another element, the political element. Prophets are politicians because they're trying to create a future. So, you know, I hesitate now because the system is so big, because this system is the expression of all of our wills. These people are very few in number. We, the people, are massive in comparison, and this is where we're at today. So now we, the people, can look at this and say, what's going on? Where do we want to go? And all the people that get so much criticism because they're always saying, oh, you guys are conspiracy theorists, or you guys are crazy. I don't see these things. They're voting. There's something optimistic about that. There's something very optimistic about the people that are continuing to live their lives. There's something not insightful about it, but let's say their contribution to the equation is they're optimistic and hopeful for a good future, and that's a great thing. Let's say that's the mass of the people. They just want to be left alone to have good lives. So that's great. Please pray that every day. And then we got a group on one end that wants to bring everything to a different level in a certain kind of way, and there's another group on the other end that wants to preserve faith and traditional values. And that's the system, and it's moving along, and that's what we're talking about. Well, how did this system get manipulated? Because it wasn't always like this. At one time, it was very, not very long ago, we saw when President Roosevelt introduced us to the Atlantic Charter. He talked about the philosophy that holds one race superior and another inferior was that of our enemies. And praise God and thank God for the strength to oppose the crazy bald heads. Of course, those are Bob Marley's words. But interestingly, Bob Marley and Franklin Roosevelt were kind of the same person. If you can get there, you know where I'm at today. So let's just move along here, and let's take a look at some of the lesser lights, how deeply this has penetrated into our system. Let's just put up this first gentleman, Hans Joachim Morgenthau. Now this guy is a German-American jurist. He was born in 1904, and he was a jurist and a political scientist who was one of the major 20th century figures in the study of international relations. You know, he, he came here. He's a German-American political scientist. He is part of the immigration of the people that left Europe and came to the United States with an ideology that was born of throwing off 
the control of the crown and the church, the corrupt crown and the corrupt church, you know, sorry, there was a revolution going on because people's lives sucked. There was no well-being. So these people were seeking, the church was promising them a spiritual future, and the crown was manipulating them, and the crown and the church were in collusion, the divine right of kings, and these people wanted to overthrow this system of human degradation and this abridgment of human rights. And they came here with that orientation. Let's get this next guy up here. Here's another guy. Okay, this guy, Kaplan, Robert David Kaplan. Now we're getting more into the more into the modern era. Born in 1952, he's an American author. His books are politics, primarily foreign affairs and travel. Three decades he's appeared in the Atlantic, the Washington Post. This guy is a student of and a product of an educational system, which we're going to go back and look at. Who are these people? This guy's a downstreamer. He's a todayer. But his worldview is focused by, informed by, Darwinists, pure materialism, the materialism of science and the materialism of Marxism. That's his education. Why do I know it? Because he was born in 52 and I was born in 59 and we were educated in the same places by the same people who told us the same things. And here's what they told us. Colonialism was horrible. There was great inequality amongst men and women that could only be redressed through Marxism. That science would solve all of our problems. He heard it. I heard it. Now, he continued, and I quit. And here I am back. So, hi, Robert. I'm back. Let's go on. And let's go to some of the biggies. I mean, where stuff really came from and really get down about it. Let's, let's take a look at Albert Einstein. It followed from the special theory of relativity that mass and energy are food, are quite different manifestations of the same thing. A somewhat unfamiliar conception for the average mind. Furthermore, the equation E is equal mc squared, in which energy is put equal to mass multiplied with the square of the velocity of light, showed that very small amount of mass may be converted into a very large amount of energy, and vice versa. The mass and energy were, in fact, equivalent, according to the formula mentioned before. This was demonstrated by Cochrane and Walton in 1932 experimentally. I mean, this, at this time, this man was viewed to be a hero of the highest order and a thinker unparalleled in human history. Now, Einstein has somewhat 
vanish from our public consciousness in significance as compared as what he was when I was young. But this is a man who was not born in this country. And this is a man who was born again in Germany. And I think we have to look at all the scholars and political figures that came to this country either fleeing the Soviet Union or fleeing the Germans or fleeing the crown. Life was not good in Europe. And people were in rebellion there. There was so much in rebellion that they, the strongest of them or the ones that had the vision to do so left the continent. I, you know, you have to think about how bad things are that you're going to leave behind your family and your friends in pursuit of a better life. That is a failure of the place within which you're living. It's a breakdown of society. Now, I'm not saying a few people don't move here and there. But when, but when there's a mass migration, which has been going on really for hundreds of years, people have been moving around trying to reshuffle, either because they were pushed out of their homeland through a war of genocide or because they sought a better life. Well, what kind of better life were they seeking? Many of these people that we're talking about left because had they stayed, if this man would have stayed in Germany, He'd have been a slavery to have been killed. So let's think about how this worked. These great scholars, and they were great scholars of their time, uh, they were offered huge money to come to the United States because our institutions of higher learning actually lagged behind the European institutions of higher learning. Our institutions were newer. Our country was newer. Our academic traditions were newer. And actually, we only picked up, this is very critical, as a country, we only picked up what's called progressive education at about the turn of the 20th century. Previous to that time, education was religious. The focus of the country's education was a religious education. That education was concomitantly taught in the schools and in the churches. So people were brought up with a very spiritual worldview as compared with what happened after the beginning of the progressive era. And it took many generations. So our higher institutions, because they were religious in their intention at start and only became progressive, you know, maybe 1870s, 80s, 90s, 1900s, they started looking to poach the talent out of these European institutions. And lo and behold, many of these people were religious refugees themselves or cultural refugees themselves. They were running from the Soviet Union. They were running from the Nazis. They were running from the crown. These people had a boogie the hell out of Dodge. And they got warm and cushy jobs at our most fantastic institutions of higher learning, and they got funded to do research, and they were rock stars because this was the dawn of the technique, not of science and the scientific method, but the application of science in everyday life 
in such a way that people's lives became easier. And this is how people got suckered into materialism. Because there was an easing of the burden, but people moved off the farm, came into the cities to participate in the industrial age. We've progressively become broken away from the land. We are no longer capable of surviving without the state. Previous to this evolution, so-called, could have been a devolution. This is why it's an experiment in consciousness. We're experimenting. What is the maximum, what is the most appropriate uh, organization of society to enhance human well-being? That's the only question our leaders need to be asking themselves. That's the only question that we, the people, need to be asking ourselves. And we need to answer this question, I think, my opinion, in a way that's novel and better than the answer that we've had because we're in the culmination of a long period of an experiment and it's very evident to me that we're losing our freedom. And when we lose our freedom, we lose our connection to spirit, we will lose our connection to well-being. So anything that degrades human well-being, we got to think it through critically, talk about it. We don't have to move quickly. We've got plenty of time. Let's take a look at this next biggie on the, on the program here. Another biggie. Leo. Let's look at Leo. We scientists who release this immense power have overwhelming responsibility in this world life and death struggle to harness atom. Benefit of mankind and not for mankind's destruction. We beg you to support our efforts to bring realization to America that mankind's destiny is being decided today, now, this moment. We ask your help in this fateful moment as sign that we scientists do not stand alone. I agree. Thank you, Albert, for agreeing. That was very nice of you. See, all he had to do is put his words in two words. I agree. That's the stamp. These two guys were very involved in creating the atomic bomb. Great. This is, uh, and I, I'm not sure, I've known about this guy my entire life. I think of him as Leo Spitz, but he went under the handle, and I'm not sure I can pronounce it correctly. Someone will correct me. Leo Slerard, and he's a Hungarian-German-American physicist. A Hungarian-German-American physicist. Another rock star. He came to this country. He was born in 1898. He conceived the nuclear chain reaction in 1933, and he patented, he had the patent on the idea of nuclear fission, on a nuclear fission reactor. He got the patent. He had, you know, I wonder if there was any money in that patent. He has the patent on the nuclear fission reactor, 1934. This is, and he wrote the letter with Albert Einstein's signature that resulted in the Manhattan Project. In other words, this guy was the driver who brought the whole program to the attention of the government, and he was kind of the cornerstone, cornerstone of the current military-industrial complex. Great scientist. Great. He's famous. But he's brought in a foreign ideology 
to an agrarian country. He brought in German physics. He was a genius, German physics. And he came over here and got a job teaching in the university and then went to work with the government. That's who he is. Um, okay, we're on the verge of nuclear war. And here's his, uh, we had to have a project manager. Here's another guy, Biggie, Robert Oppenheimer, J. Robert Oppenheimer, please. He knew the world would not be the same. Few people laughed. Few people cried. Most people were silent. I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita. Vishnu is trying to persuade the prince that he should do his duty and to impress him takes on his multi-armed form and says, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. That's good. This guy, you can tell looking at his face, and listen to how he's talking. This guy was the guy that is responsible for the engineering feat called the atomic bomb. Obviously, he had some problems with it. He has a little post-traumatic stress disorder because he watched it dropped on two cities and he saw the destruction and he's struggling with it. He doesn't even really look human anymore. He looks a little anti-human. He was born in 1904 an American theoretical physicist, a professor of physics at the University of California, Berkeley. He was the wartime head of the Los Alamos Laboratory and is often credited as the father of the atomic bomb for his role in the Manhattan Project, the first nuclear weapons. So, you know, the guy, uh, he struggled. He struggled. He was born in New York City in April 22, 1904. There was a humongous, a huge, two and a half million people came into New York City uh, from Eastern Europe in the late 1800s, early 1900s. His family was among them. And uh, many of these people were very religious people. And it also spawned some people that were pure materialists. They really didn't believe in God in any way, shape, or form. These people believed in science. And this was a foreign ideology in our universities. The progressive movement included making our universities completely materialistic, both in the science departments and in our social science departments, philosophy, anthropology, sociology, economics. Let's put up that next picture. This is getting personal. This is a guy named Herbert Feigl. I knew Herbert Feigl. That will be a shock to many people. But uh, this guy was famous. This guy, another guy, born in Germany, December 14, 1902. A whole cohort of them came here to escape the Russian uh, pogroms, the Soviet Union, the Nazis, and the Crown. They boogied the hell out of Europe and they came to the United States. And they brought with them what I would consider a bad attitude. They all had a bad attitude. And their attitude was, there's no God. There's no spiritual. There's only science. 
to solve all the problems of humanity. They bet on science. And why did they do that? Because they came from extremely impoverished conditions, feudal conditions. They came out of a tradition that was at war with the hierarchy and with the orthodoxy, with the status quo. They were Antifa of their day. You know, this kind of revolution keeps spinning around. But these people threw the baby out with the bathwater. And I'm very critical of them. And I will be very critical of them as we move forward. But we need to know what they brought here. And we need to know how our society revered them. This guy, I met him in the 1960s. He taught at the University of Minnesota. Famous. He eventually went to Harvard. Uh, son of a trained weaver who became a textile designer. Feigl was born in Bohemia. He matriculated to the University of Vienna in 1922. And here we go again. He studied physics. Oh, this guy had a double interest, physics and philosophy. Of course, that's what his deal was, the philosophy of science. Because, you know, we got to keep the scientists honest. See, there was a whole movement here for a while before things went completely to shit where a bunch of uh, people with sacred honor said, we got to watch these scientists. Just like President Eisenhower said. Remember we had that previous, I'm going to have to play that one again, in his famous military-industrial complex uh, uh, speech just before he went into retirement. He said we need an informed, uh, an informed citizenship to compel, to put guardrails on the military-industrial complex. Well, that's what Feigl was. He was a philosopher of science. But he was a Marxist. So he came at it with a distinctly materialist orientation. Now, these guys came on their own running away. And they came into the waiting arms of a very wealthy university system that was happy to pay them big money. And they went about starting to change the universities. Because these universities beforehand were bastions of Christian conservatism. That's what they were. They were divinity schools. And these guys rolled in Marxist, and they started going to hammer and tong. They went to work on these academics, and, the, and they started to convert them. That's what politics is. Politics is using oratory and composition to convince other people of the rightness of your position. And because these people were coming out of a very impoverished, feudal, corrupt system, and they were saying, hey, we got a better idea, they were very successful. But now we're at the end of that era because the corruption of those ideas is becoming very evident to who? Where did the philosophers of science go? Oh, they're all in on it now because they're all part of this current university system. And if they want to teach, they have to give up their academic independence. They're going to fight me and tell me I'm full of shit. But I grew up in that world, and I know if you're going to get a tenured position at a major teaching institution, you are going to adopt what is now the status quo conservative viewpoint of that institution, which is materialism. There is no way you're going to get a full-time teaching position. Well, there is a way. They have to have a few tokens there. In fact, someone once told me I was a token. Uh, you're a token in that institution. And that's, that makes you really, that hurts inside. I couldn't do that. I can't be a token. Can't, take, can't do that. Someone that I really like said to me, I'll, I'll, I'm going to name his name, Royce White. 
There's nothing wrong with taking the money if it doesn't change your presentation of your belief in truth. If you get paid and you continue to tell what you think the truth is, you have not been compromised. But if you get paid and you start to alter your presentation of truth, to take that money, you've been corrupted. And that's the state of our academic institutions all the way down now to elementary school. That's where our kids go. I've sent five kids through, so I know what I'm talking about. And call me crazy. Oh, no, excuse me, that's Royce White's podcast, also on Free People Radio. Tune in, go check it out, subscribe. Fantastic. Free People Radio is for the free people of America. Who wants to be free? Because without freedom, there's no well-being. These people probably didn't know that. These ones that came up, and maybe they did. There's going to be people who say, oh, they knew it from the start. Well, I'm not in their heads. I know where we've gotten to. I'm not going to sit here and impugn negative intentions to people I can't talk to unless they've written, if they left me a written record, okay, then I'm going to call them out. And there's plenty of that. But some of these people actually believed that they were making a better world. They weren't. It's an experiment. That's why we have experiments. We have to make a change. If we don't have sacred honor in our institutions, if we don't have the goal of sacred honor, even with that goal, things get corrupt. But when you remove it as a goal, oh, man, I mean, that's it. You don't even start out with the hope of aspiring. You know, I, there's a, a Korean martial art. It's called Subak Do. Everybody talks about black belts. This particular art has a blue belt for its highest rank. Midnight blue, because you can always get better. The, signi the significance of a, of a midnight blue color was that it could always reach to a higher level. You never could be perfected. So if we don't have that as a goal, if we're not striving, we're corrupt coming out of the gates. It's just a crazy way to run this show. It didn't work. It's obvious it didn't work because all of our institutions are corrupt. Okay, so I knew Feigl, and Feigl matriculated to Harvard, and he's, he was a you know, little bit over the bar. He was, he was an important figure, but he was another German physicist intellectual that came into the university system and was a rock star and brought in a, a different kind of thinking. But then we had other ways for people to come in. Let's run this thing on Operation Paperclip, just for fun. World War II was not just a war of inhumanity and a total annihilation. It was a war of technology and science. Nazi Germany led the world in various technological innovations, all of which were sought after by the Allies, both Western and Soviet, when the war ended. And that included the people who helped create them. How did the United States and Great Britain obtain the best and brightest minds behind Hitler's wonder weapons and science? Why did they want them? What was the result of Operations Lusty and Paperclip? And why was Operation Paperclip so controversial long after the war was over? Before the end of World War II, British and American intelligence put a plan together to collect as much German technology and the men who created it as possible and hopefully beat the Soviets in the process. These two programs were called Operations Lusty and Operation Paperclip. 
World War You were not good to us. We trusted you. And in your lust for power and control, you brought Nazis here. Nazis. Real. Lots of them. Not a few. Not a few Nazis. A lot of Nazis. Now, what is Nazism? It's a political strategy. It's the implementation of ideas in a political tactic. The ideas were there before Nazism. They were there during Nazism. And guess what? They're here right now after Nazism. We imported, we, we the people, our elected representatives and the agencies that they supervised imported the ideas that underlie the Nazi party, brought them into our government, brought them into our universities, brought them into our science and technology development, engineering, talent pool. Why? Because these people were crazy bald heads. They were not thinking about the well-being of the American people. They were thinking about the well-being of all the people on the world. These people were so arrogant that they thought that their way that they perceived the world was good for everybody. Everybody had it. It was called the post-World War II democratic liberal order. And these people in pursuit of that hegemony, that control, that power, or as some people might call it, colonialism 2.0 the colonialism of ideas and economics, replacing the colonialism of subjugation. But what's the business model? Let's look at the business model, because colonialism, that's a political tactic. The post-World War II democratic liberal order is a political strategy and tactic. What are the ideas underneath? What are these strategies and tactics implementing? And it's materialism and a business model of drugs. Look at our society. We're all on drugs, even if it's just aspirin, okay? Everybody is going to the doctor my age and being told they need a bunch of drugs. I'm not taking any of those drugs. I'm just not, and I'm healthy. I'm not saying I wouldn't go to the doctor if I needed to go. And I'm not saying doctors don't have a place in your health care strategy and in your well-being strategy. I'm saying I, David Penn, today, I am not taking any pharmacological agents. I'm not par I am not participating in that business model. I am a wage slave, but I aspire to freedom. And I believe in freedom. I have my creativity. I might be able to escape. And there's a lot of different ways to escape. Okay? But I am in the wage slave system. That's a fact. And I have inflation to deal with. Piracy, drugs, slavery. Piracy, inflation. I'm a victim. You know, I look at where am I at in this business model? How do I extricate myself? How do I extricate our society? Well, that's we the people. That's the free people. 
All we got to say is, no, we're not doing this like this anymore. This is purely crazy the way this is. We don't have to have a society that's high on drugs all the time. We just choose it. Like that song from Bill Withers, Use Me. Use Me, he says. Boy, if you only knew how good this was, brother, you wouldn't be talking to me like this. He's complicit in being used. He likes it, if you only knew how good this was. Well, is it really good? Maybe when these excess deaths got up a little bit higher, people are going to realize they're getting clipped. Okay, the, the information's there. It's interpretive. I, the information's out for me. Science, please science, please inquire. Please Congress, inquire. Tell us what's going on. Tell us what's going on with all the pollution. Tell us what's going on with the, all these different impacts upon my well-being. I don't, I don't even know all of them. I would like to have a Congress that talked about all the things that impact my well-being and then improve it. But one thing I know for sure, this isn't up for any kind of, I can't get in trouble for saying this because it's a fact. Life expectancy is declining. If life expectancy is declining, that's a pretty good measure that well-being is under assault. We want our life expectancy to increase, not infinitely. But when it's declining, if we're off a peak and it's going down, something's going on. Let's look at that well-being issue. But this ideology came in, this materialist ideology. We brought in these Nazis. Let's take a listen. Let's take a listen to Werner Braunbaum. I, I digressed. I'm delighted to be invited back to Huntsville to participate in the dedication of the Alabama Space and Rocket Center. And I, for one, am convinced that this facility truly matches the dreams of the early planners. The Alabama Space and Rocket Center obviously is much more Nazi, than a place Nazi, of entertainment. Nazi, there they all are. It is an educational tool. It will help all persons to better understand that the space program is designed to benefit mankind. Oh, really? The space program was designed to benefit mankind. This is one of these classic, we're going to serve you shit and tell you it's caviar, and if you complain, you're in trouble. There's nothing about this program that is a benefit to my well-being. It has been a sword of Damocles over my head my entire lifetime. And I mean my entire lifetime. These people mastered rocket. This guy is the guy that was the father of the V-2 rocket and the V-1 rocket. These were the first ballistic missiles ever to be used against civilian populations. That, those rockets were made by slave labor. Thousands, and if not hundreds of thousands of people, died in the program that he administered in Nazi Germany. Now, people are going to say he would have been clipped if he would have stood up. And my comment is, stand up and be clipped. You cannot preside over a program where tens of thousands of people die as slave laborers and, and escape your responsibility as participating in mass murder. And the outgrowth of that slave labor was the first ballistic missiles which ever carried explosives intercontinentally or intercountrywide. They were launched in, 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 in uh, Western Europe, and they landed in England and killed lots of people. 
You're looking at his face. That's the guy, Werner. And what did Werner von Braun? Werner von Braun, born in Germany, imported into the United States by the United States government, the government we elected. We elected the people that came up with Operation Paperclip. We, the people, are responsible for this. Nobody else. We are given a constitution. We have the constitutional power to practice self-governance. If we elect people and let them go without our continuous oversight, they will import Nazis into our country that will develop rockets that can deliver what? People in the space? Bullshit. This was about developing a delivery system for nuclear weapons. And boy, do we have a mess on our hands now on the verge of nuclear war. Everybody's armed up with these missiles. It's a rock, right? An atomic bomb is a rock. Why don't we fear North Korea with their nuclear weapons? Because they can kill the Japanese, but they can't wipe out San Diego. As soon as they get ballistic weapons, missiles, that will allow them to drop a rock that kills a million people on Denver, up! Oh! People are going to get shook up. That's why people are so shook up about Iran, because they're developing the capability of becoming a nuclear state, and they have advanced rocketry. And I bet if we track back where we got it, it's from Germans. It's from Germans. These people spread out all over the world. Some of them went to the Soviet Union. Some of them went to China. All of the countries of the world got this technology, the major countries. It all comes from this program, this scientific program that the Germans developed because they had the best universities, the best science, the best physicists, the best aeronautical engineers. The, the Europeans had the best of everything. We had a young country, a young agrarian country that was slow to industrialize compared with Britain. By the time we industrialized, Britain was already financializing what we're doing today, something we'll talk about in the future. This group of people were imported by our security state. We, the people, brought them in. We were responsible for them, and we put them right into our universities where they taught our children. That's correct. They weren't taught about spirit. They weren't taught about well-being. They were taught by Nazis and by other European intellectuals, both from the scientific material background and from the Marxist material background, how to see the world. It's so bad, and it was so obvious to people in the 1960s. There's a great movie I want to play, a, a clip, which is, it says everything. It, it tells this story because art, art, art just is the gift that keeps on giving. This is a timeless movie, Dr. Strangelove. It's a Stanley Kubrick movie. Everybody should watch it from beginning to end. This character, Dr. Strangelove, is an amalgamation in Kubrick's mind. He wrote this script of several people. But let's watch this because it typifies where we're at today. I would guess that a dwelling space for several hundred thousand of our people could easily be provided. Well, I'm, I would hate to have to decide who stays up and who goes down? Well, that would not be necessary, Mr. President. Could easily be accomplished with a computer. 
and the computer could be set and programmed to accept factors from youth, health, sexual fertility, intelligence, and a cross-section of necessary skills. Of course, it would be absolutely vital that our top government and military men be included to foster and impart the required principles of leadership and tradition. <laughs> Actually, they would breed prodigiously, eh? There would be much time and little to do. <laughs> but uh, with the proper breeding techniques and the ratio of, say, 10 females to each male, I would guess that they could then work their way back to the present gross national product within, say, 20 years. But look here, Doctor, wouldn't this nucleus of survivors be so grief-stricken and anguished that they'd well, envy the dead and not want to go on living? No, sir. Excuse me. Also, when, when they go down into the mine, everyone will still be alive. There will be no shocking memories. And the prevailing motion will be one of nostalgia for those left behind. Combined with a spirit of... Bold curiosity for the adventure ahead. <laughs> well, that uh, that's funny to this day. Uh, it's funny in the most kind of horrifying way. The use of computers, of course, to pick out who's going to live and die, were there. The fact that our government has mine shafts where our top government officials and our top military officials are going to go in the event of a nuclear war, that capability was there in 1963. It's probably way better now than it was then. And this idea that uh, there wouldn't be much to do and these guys are going to go down there, they're laughing about it, but they're actually looking at a, a world in which it's better for them than it is right now. And Kubrick was trying to explain to us in 63 that a world in which humanity was destroyed but that the elites could survive in their redoubts and their mine shafts, this is, this is something that people wanted to accomplish. You could see it in the eyes of, of the military leaders. They thought it was kind of cool. Well, now this is a many, many decades later. They've, in this period of time since this movie, 1963 to today, they've gotten so good at building these places to go hang out and hide out while the rest of us live in a kind of a hell. What's going to deter them from bringing us this hell? Because the hell that they want to bring up, bring us is another info war. It's very easy. We the people, our will, rising up as a chorus, activated in defense of our lives, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, our voices rising up in self-governance will bring us to a place where we can revise and rebuild our institutions, build an alternative world to this Darwinist materialist world, strengthen ourselves, 
bring well-being to ourselves. We don't have to fight with these people. I don't want to fight with them. They're entitled to believe whatever it is they believe as long as they don't violate the U.S. Constitution and our system of laws that grant me certain unalienable rights. And we just have to fight to defend our rights in every way we need to, legally, politically, socially, educationally. We have to be active. It's, it's our generation's turn to defend liberty here in the United States. It's not a big deal. It could be really fun when we find the people in our community that we enjoy hanging out with. I realize that people are going to go into the political and find a lot of people that aren't so fun to hang around with. They're not honest. That's part of the deal. We're going to have to show them honesty by being honest. It's not, it's not hard to do. That is the fundamental building block of spiritual development, telling the truth. We're just going to tell the truth or our version of the truth. And we know it's our version of the truth. There's no reason to fight. They have a version of the truth, too. We have a history. They have a history. It's like people sitting on, standing on different corners and watching a car accident. All of us agree there's a car accident. What are we going to do about it? What are we going to do? What is our collective will going to generate? It's not up to them. They have a voice. We elected them, or they took power, and we allowed them to take power. But their voice is not the strongest. They're just leading right now because we are letting them use us, like the Bill Withers song. What a song. Fantastic. So here's Dr. Strangelove. I want to play a figure. This is a horrifying clip. I want you to, pref if, you know, this is like if you're going to watch something for mature audiences. This clip is for mature audiences only. Play, let's play this Herman Kahn clip. 30 miles north of New York City, the problems of our violent age are pondered over in one of America's most influential think tanks, the Hudson Institute. In this 19th century mansion, they are looking for alternative futures, both utopian and dystopian. The end product of this think tank, scenarios, scripts for the 21st century. Uh, you know, let's admit that you know, the affluence, the skills, the technology, will really make life better in all kinds of ways. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, we also know these things go badly. Right. Uh, okay, everybody's worried about the, the possibilities of you know, various kinds of social controls and so on. What would the scenario be? Herman Kahn is director of the institute, Tony Wiener his assistant. Uh, it has to involve the, the social controls coming into effect gradually and um, uh, slowly, and at each step, can you stop it for a second? Which seems to I don't want anybody to miss this. This is in the early 1950s, perhaps the late 1940s. They're going to start talking about social controls. They're going to mention the Black Panthers. So maybe it's a little bit later. Maybe it's the 60s. They're going to talk about computer technology. They're going to talk about drugging populations. This is one of the most horrifying clips I mean, so much stuff comes down off the Internet. I can't believe that I found this on there. This is, this is everything that has come to pass being written down. This was an institute that, of course, was funded by 
the security state, Herman Kahn was hugely involved in government. This was also part of our university system. It would make me think that everything that got funded for research from this moment forward was funded to bring about the result that these people were forecasting when they did this in the 60s. We're living in the blooming forth, the flowering of this man's vision. That's power. But he's one guy and he only got away with it because we weren't paying attention. We're paying attention now. Let's all wake up. All we have to say is, fuck off, we're not going to do this. Please play this thing. Be very much in the general interest. That yeah. is no imposition by um, an evil, uh, evilly intended big brother. How are we going to achieve a utopian peace in our cities, even without the bomb? What is the scenario for a utopian peace? To take a black power movement, right. and one which really is trying to cause problems. Stop it. Stand in the gear. Oh, I'm wrong. Not the Black Panthers, Black Power Movement. That probably puts this back a little bit earlier. This looks like a 50s clip to me, or early 60s. Please continue. Right. And you've already set up a good deal of this social uh, watching. Mm. You know, you've got your TV cameras everywhere. You've got your data processing. Stop. Everybody has his eyes. Social cameras everywhere, data processing. They're talking about a future. They're talking about a future that they implement. They actually brought this into being. They stood... The whole computer research program from day one was meant to create a security state. This guy is very influential. Please continue. ID card, you've double checked it. Mm -hmm. And now all of a sudden you've got these guys that are throwing sand in the gears and you clamp down. That is, you keep track of every car. You keep track of every, this is easy to do. You keep track of 10% uh, or 100% of conversations that occur on telephones. Uh, one could, um, with a computer capacity that will be available in the next couple of decades, one could easily record every phone conversation Stop. made. You know, these guys, as I look at them, they're probably both dead. I'm sure one guy is dead. They're, they're both dead. This is, to me, I don't know if there's a criminal code around it, but it's a, to me, it's, uh, let's not talk criminal. It's appalling. They're talking about using our smartphones to listen to every conversation for keywords. It's the security state in its infancy. Just like the Atlantic Charter was the cornerstone of the New World Order, you're looking at, we've got a visual. These people left this out here for a reason. They want this found because this is, I can't think of a more inflammatory clip. Please continue. And then one could easily scan mechanically, no human being could spend the centuries that would be required. One could scan every conversation looking for keywords that would identify the conversation as uh, worth looking into a little further. So that, for example, uh, one could begin with a naive set of words. Uh, kill, rob, murder, assassinate, plot, uh, conspire. You know, you can do more than that. You can, uh... You could imagine temporarily tranquilizing a whole city. Stop. You, know, you could imagine temporarily tranquilizing a whole city. Well, the guys that came after him said, that's a really good idea. Let's just tranquilize every... We're going to tranquilize everyone 
all the time with their smartphones will get them addicted to a dopamine rush. They'll spend all their time in their smartphones. We'll be able to monitor everything they say for keywords. We'll know everything they look at. We'll know everything about them. And we're going to tell them how great it is for them. We're going to give them so many benefits that they're going to consensually enter the tranquil state by themselves. Please continue. Been upset, been riots. Mm-hmm. You know, let's put trans guards either in the air or in the water. Mm-hmm. You know, just mm-hmm. get people settled down a bit. Uh, I could imagine. Stop it again. He hadn't even figured out this smartphone smartphone thing. This guy laid a, a cornerstone down and thought, how do we, let's just get him to settle down a little bit. Let's get the guys, we're going to be able to find and identify the people that throw the sand in the gears because we're going to be able to monitor every phone call. And we're just going to get everybody to be tranquil. This is this man's view of humanity. It's not very uplifting. It's purely materialist. It's man as inventory because in his world, there is no spiritual life because the kind of life he is envisioning includes no well-being. If everybody's drugged, if there is no freedom of thought, if everyone is afraid, there's no way people can be free. They can't be well. Could we please continue it? Medicine going on in this kind of state, mm-hmm. you know, where you really check up with everybody and to see that they keep their drug levels right. Yes. In fact, give the... Uh, the first thing you do when you go into uh, to work is they punch you and check your blood and see the drug levels, what's supposed oh, to be. Oh, that's great. Stop her there. Whoa, just like COVID. First thing you do when you go to work, take a COVID test. I mean, these people were getting this worked out 50 years ago. You know, they had a 50-year plan. We can't even agree to sit down and be friends with each other. And that's also part of their plan to divide us politically with wedge issues so we can never organize against this kind of control. This is evil at its highest level on display for you today on the Professor Penn podcast. It doesn't get any worse than this. You know, you can torture a person and get them to recant that they have faith. That's very evil too. And the person that cut out William Wallace's liver when they executed him. And these two people, this is where I'm at today, I'm sorry, they're the same people. Please continue. You'll buy the safety uh, of your city at the expense of the privacy of individuals. Oh, stop again. You're going to give up your privacy, i.e. freedom, for safety. We're going to make you unsafe, and then we're gonna, you're going to beg us. You're going to beg us to provide security. Okay, so let's think about our modern life. We've given up our freedom for a material high and for safety. And they knew this in the 60s. They were working on it. Please continue. Individuals, and for most people, most of the time, uh, the intrusion will not be the kind of thing they'd be conscious of. So the scenario for a utopia without violence is achieved at the expense of your private life. Well... That certainly was a bone chilling. Uh, boy, what would you even call it? What would you even call that? What kind of bone chilling thing is that? It's kind of like a time capsule. 
It's a time capsule from the days gone by. The, to realize that these people have been planning this for 50 years, you know, why not say they've been planning it for 500 years? Because we're in the 500-year period of the post-enlightenment, and that word enlightenment, enlightenment, that sounds like marketing to me. Dark ages sounds like marketing to me. And where do these words come from? They come out of the academic discourse and scholarship that go on in these academies, which are thoroughly materialistic and given over to an anti-God ideology. And look at the results of it. Again, an experiment in human consciousness. An experiment. Now, when you see an experiment yields results that you don't want, can we turn back? Can we come up with a new idea? That's what we're working on here on Free People Radio and Free People of America, on the Professor Penn Podcast. We're actually questioning where we've been, where we are, and we want to think about where we want to go together. That's why we're a community. We're going to talk about it. Okay, so Herman Kahn, just so you know, the heavyset guy, the older guy, that was Herman Kahn. He was an American physicist and founding member of the Hudson Institute. That building was the Hudson Institute, funded by the security state, regarded as one of the preeminent futurists of the latter part of the 20th century. He originally came to prominence as a, prominence as a military strategist and systems theorist while employed at the RAND Corporation. He became known for analyzing the likely consequences of a nuclear war and recommending ways to improve survivability during a nuclear war. Kant posited the idea of a winnable nuclear exchange in his 1960 book On Thermonuclear War, for which he is cited as one of the historical inspirations for the title character of Stanley Kubrick's classic black comedy film, the satire, Dr. Strangelove. So you can see Dr. Strangelove. There he is. He's a real person. So these people, like Kahn, like Einstein, all these people come out of this European experience, and they were reacting to something. Now, I'm not saying these people are right. They're horrifying. They believed that the ends justified the means, and what they were committed to was ending feudalism or the old world order. Let's just take a little look at the old world order. Here's uh, our recently departed Queen Elizabeth. Please, could you play this for us? my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service and to the service of our great imperial family to which we all belong. In a way, I didn't have an apprenticeship. My father died much too young, and so it was all a very sudden kind of taking on and making the best job you can. It's a question of accepting the fact that here you are and, and it's your fate. I declare before you all... So this, this short of, of, of Queen Elizabeth, who just recently died, she lived into her 90s, she ascended to the crown as queen, uh, I think it was uh, like 1952, if my memory serves me correct. And this was right when the decolonization project was in full swing. Roosevelt, as we discussed, had imposed upon Churchill the terms of the Atlantic Charter, and that was the beginning of the end for this old world order. And these people were not liked. 
I, these European academics that came here and took over our academic infrastructure, they hated feudalism and the crown and the divine right of kings. They hated it so much, they threw the baby out with the bathwater. And in other words, they threw out faith. They were so sure that a world that had generated the divine right of kings and had the complicity of the church with the monarchies, followed up by the ravages of World War II, they were sure that these people, they were sure that the problem was religion. That's what they identified as the root cause. And they interjected a new religion called secularism or, or uh, anti-God philosophy, materialism, Darwinism, the things we've been talking about over the last few podcasts. Look at the, the incredible wealth and power. As Queen Liz said, we're all members of the imperial family. Well, really, I don't think these people that became communists saw themselves as beneficiaries of the imperial project. Let's go back a little bit. Let's look at King George V's funeral. Let's just see how this thing was looking at the time, what the world saw. Please. A last tribute to a great king, a great and honored man, the father of an empire. The mile-long procession started near St. James's Palace while the gun carriage was yet at Westminster. Headed by household cavalry dismounted, foot guards, marines and dominion troops. And the music of the dead march, played by the Royal Air Force, filled the morning air. The gun carriage drawn by men of the Royal Navy, came slowly through the gates at Westminster to begin its last long journey, through a city so recently gay with jubilee bunting, now shrouded in purple and black and white. But here there was more than the outward show of homage. There was the true sorrow in the heart of a nation deeply grieving. Behind the gun carriage came the Royal Standard Bearer, and behind the Standard Bearer, King Edward and his brothers. Then the Earl of Harwood in guardsman's bearskin cap, the King and Crown Prince of Norway, the Earl of Athlone, King Carol of Romania, King Christian of Denmark, Monsieur Lebrun of France in mourning dress, King Boris of Bulgaria, and the King of the Belgians, himself so sadly bereaved. Six kings, 22 princes, and three queens followed in the dignity of grief with the grand dukes and emirs of the world. For the last time, King George passed the shrine that was raised to the million who died for him. He died serving their memory. To the queen, who clutched a handkerchief as she followed in her carriage, 
Our thoughts reach out in silent sympathy and understanding. From St. James's, the cottage filed slowly into Piccadilly, towards the green of Hyde Park, now black with the scores of thousands who came to mourn. Okay, that's enough of this. This just goes to show and to demonstrate the incredible wealth that had been concentrated in the city of London after 500 years of imperial activity, which is slavery and its drugs and its piracy, and the gap between the ornate uh, display of imperial power and the money that's required to pull this kind of thing off and the way Europeans were living really underscores why these Eastern European people that came to the United States had such a bad attitude about the old world order and wanted to overthrow it and create a new world order. Let's take a look at Tsar Nicholas. We have a very similar display of imperial power. These, these rulers, and they were rulers, they were divinely appointed as the controllers and the masters of the largest landmass country on earth, super wealthy. And not only were they wealthy, but dissent was severely repressed as we're going to see in this next piece, which was a, what they called a pogrom, basically a riot, that took place in Russia, which is a very notable historical event. Please go ahead and play that. Thank you. So this is 1903. This was a well-publicized uh, uh, event. Was publicized all over the world. And I just want to say to people, it kind of reminds me of the way uh, the Black Wall Street was uh, overrun and people were killed and women were raped and the way that the, the Black Wall Street was destroyed in Tulsa. This was also going on uh, in Russia, where the hierarchy, the, the, the imperial hierarchy, was destroying and attacking uh, groups of people that they viewed as a threat to their rule. And why they viewed it as a threat is so many of these materialist, anti-old world order people were growing out of this kind of repression. Didn't matter if they were Polish or German or Jewish or Lithuanian or Latvian or Russian, there was a huge rejection of the old world order that became focused in the European institutions of higher learning and then as those people fled oppression, they went to the United States, primarily the upper, uh, the, the, the northeast of the country. That's good enough. Thank you very much. So these people came, came with a bad attitude. They wanted a new world order. And boy, there was some, uh, some very notable figures that came out of here. We talked about some great scientific figures, Einstein, for example. Let's get to the political theorists or the Marxists that really you're going to recognize their names because they come out of this tradition. Let's uh, look at Henry Kissinger sitting at the World Economic Forum, his headquarters. Let's listen to what he's got to say. I want to 
say a few sentences about how I look at the world. Because in the American public discussion, there's often the argument, should one look at the world from a realistic point of view or from an idealistic point of view? I think that is a false a dichotomy. One has to begin with an assessment of the situation as it is. If one cannot do that, one cannot make any predictions about the future. Can you stop it, please? But one cannot rest. What he's saying, the false dichotomy is materialism versus a spiritual life, that there, that's a false dichotomy. There's only realism, or what they said uh, in the academic world, logical positivism. There was no spiritual element to this. There was nothing that we could aspire to. False dichotomy, Henry Kissinger says. He is a logical positivist. He's a materialist. He's a realist. Please continue. On the situation as it is, because what happens especially in times of turmoil. It's the challenge of moving the world from where it is to where it has not yet been. And that requires vision and idealism. This guy's been around a long, long time. Henry Kissinger uh, got his career going at Harvard in the 50s, and he then became... um, Uh, Secretary of State. First, he was the National Security Advisor under President Nixon, and then he became the Secretary of State, and he presided over the opening of China. He was the lead negotiator on uh, the the, uh, peace talks in Paris with Vietnam to bring the Vietnam War to an end. The guy was reviled by the left, reviled. He was hated by the leftists as a warmonger, as a, as a double dealer, uh, dis, just discredited. Now he's still around. Now he's embraced by the left. They love him. Something changed about liberals. I'm not quite sure what it was. Well, yes, I am. They were always materialists. They were always seeking control and power. And their liberalism was a thin veneer, a cover story over their communism. They're communists. They are radical materialists. And Kissinger gave birth. He was the one that took that Atlantic Charter and organized that into a set of future plans, working with people like Herman Kahn and all the rest of these intellectuals that came from the European experience. You know, Kissinger was a refugee, fled Germany in 38. He graduated from Harvard in 1950. He got an MA and PhD degrees at Harvard also in 51 and 54. He was responsible, as I said, for negotiating the ceasefire in Vietnam. He was responsible for opening China. This man is still alive. He's 99 years old. This guy has got still very dis, just a, a high degree of influence on world affairs. And he comes out of this European experience an anti-spiritual experience in his, in his mind, and he's, you know, he's seeking a, a logical positivist solution to the problem of humanity, the human problem. His number one student, his, he, well, he's got two. Klaus Schwab was a graduate student, and 
you got Zygmunt Brzezinski. This was one of his graduate students who also went into government and became the national security advisor under President Carter in 1976. Brzezinski was a Pole. He was Polish. His father was in the Polish government. They were rabid anti-Russian because Poland is sitting there in between Germany and Russia, and it just doesn't work good for the Poles. Whichever way the wind is blowing, Poland is the doorstep. So when the Germans attacked Russia in Operation Barbarossa, they went right across Poland, right across the Ukraine. They crushed the Polish people. In fact, they attacked Poland first. I mean, they on their way to Russia, they actually prosecuted a war against Poland. And when the Russians came back, across on the way to Germany, right across Poland, they rolled. So the Poles have a deep and abiding dislike of the Russians and the Germans. And Brzezinski, working through NATO, set up the anti-Soviet, anti-Russian strategy that prevails to this day. The Afghanistan debacle for the Russians was brought to us by Zygmunt Brzezinski. The current Ukrainian policy, if you go back through Brzezinski's writings, this is his strategy. And Brzezinski had a technocracy vision of the future back in the 70s when he was writing his PhD theses, back in the 60s when he was working on his, on his theory of, of how the world should develop. He was anti-God, totally technocratic, anti-Soviet, and we're living in his prop wash here today. And, you know, his daughter, Mika Brzezinski, is on the number one political central show on MSNBC, Morning Joe. Let's listen to a little bit of this. What do we do the next time Israel is attacked uh, from, from, a, a third, uh, from an outside force? What do we do at that point? That's, that's, to wrong, that's the wrong question. No, that's not the wrong question well, because, because we never, get the, we never get the condemnation I'm of trying. Hamas or Hezbollah. It's always after Israel responds to defending no, itself. No, it's not. The problem is that this conflict has lasted for years and the United States has been largely passive. So the right question is not what do we do when things break down. The right question is what do we do to avoid a breakdown by being engaged seriously in the peace process. And for the last eight years, we haven't been. And that's why we have the mess like we have right now in our hands. You, you, you can't blame what is happening in Israel right now on the Bush administration. Yes, you can. No, you look, can't. Well, look, do, do, okay, let's go back to 2000, Dr. Brzezinski. You and I both know Bill Clinton gave Arafat and the Palestinians everything you know, you they could have wanted. You have such a stunningly superficial knowledge of what went on that it's almost embarrassing to it, listen to you. Oh, is it? If you were to look more closely at what happened in the Clinton-Camp uh, David discussions, you would know that what we have just said is absolutely wrong. There were all sorts of provisions and catches to the so-called proposal, and it wasn't rejected. The negotiations went on in Taba, and then there were elections in Israel. And Sharon came in, and everything got aborted. In the last eight years, we had a policy in which we have proclaimed an interest in peace. Condi Rice has traveled 16 times in 21 months to That's the region, good. proclaiming. We've heard enough of Yu. Zigbinu's daughter Mika's sitting there. What's really interesting? He slapped Joe down. You have such a superficial knowledge of this; it's almost embarrassing to talk to you. This is something a man can say only 
when he has complete domination of the intellectual space. And what's even funnier is Joe and Mika eventually got married. So this guy's beating up his future son-in-law, and that's one of the most brutal beatdowns on live television I ever saw. But the point is this man picked up and amplified the Kissinger legacy. He is, again, an Eastern European. He's a Pole, obviously not a supporter of Israel, not a big win. You know, Joe was chilling there for the Jewish state. Zygmunt, the Pole, and, you know, that's the Polish jewelry wiped out. And just like in the Ukraine, the Polish people, some of them helped, and many of them got right in there, slapped them swastikas on their armbands, on their arms, that swastika, and killed Jews with great enjoyment. So, you know, this whole pot, that, that, that storm front from the Baltic states down to the southern Ukraine, that border between Germany and Russia, all the fighting and violence and the poverty and the impact of the monarchies, and it didn't matter if a guy was a Polish guy or a German guy like Werner von Braun or these, these intellectuals that came out of the Jewish shtetl experience. They all came to the United States, all of them. All of them came. A huge European migration. Some of the Jewish people actually brought with them the cornerstone, the bedrock of the Judeo-Christian tradition. Most of them were faithless. Some of them had faith. Most of them were utterly materialist. They came here for a material life, as did Brzezinski, as did Werner von Braun, and the tens of thousands of people that came in Operation Paperclip. I think they admit to 3,000. Cover story. There was so many of these people that came over here from every one of these countries, and they came with one thing in common. They brought the European intellectual tradition with them which was a materials tradition of science and Marxism. And they took positions all throughout our academic infrastructure. And they've taught generations and generations of students so that now when a young conservative shows up in a classroom, he's shouted down by the students who take a kind of hive-like approach and will not allow the person to speak. Imagine being in a university, which is the center of our inquiry, where we argue and we study and we look at things with doubt and we look at things to continuously improve them. We're taking one story against another story. We're sharpening our understanding of history, of science, and you can't even talk there. And that is the outgrowth of this Marxist scientific hegemony which has developed such that no dissent is tolerated. And that's where we've gotten to today. And I say this, I have kids in school and in these kind of institutions. My heart breaks. I don't want them there. But they're there. I can't get them out of there because they went through school and they want to go to college. They want to go to university. And they're being bombarded with this materialist uh, ideology. And, you know, I'm told, well, they're going to maintain their faith. Yeah, sure. You know, my father went to New York City as a young man uh, to become uh, educated in the faith, and he came out a communist. 
So, you know, this stuff has had a huge impact on our society. It's time for us to, to, to sort out what that impact is, how it got here, because what I'm advocating for is an authentic American uh, intellectual tradition, an authentic American foreign policy, an authentic American domestic policy based on one concept, our Constitution, which is all about peace and justice and tranquility. Peace, tranquility, same thing. Justice, the cornerstone upon which peace rests, about the general welfare, about forming a community, all the things that make us well as people. Nuclear weapons do not make us well. Living in fear does not make us well. Living in a business model of slavery, of piracy and drugs, does not make us well. And we're accepting this, like the Bill Weathers song, Use Me. Please use me. That's who we are. This is a failure of masculinity and a failure of femininity. And this failure of humanity is related to our inability to stand up and exercise our God-given natural rights to pursue life, liberty, and happiness. We're giving it up by not self-governing. So here in Minnesota, where I live, I'm involved in politics. I self-govern in every way that I can, every minute of, I, of every day. A lot of self-governance is related strictly to my well-being. What do I do to keep myself spiritually, mentally, physically well? And I have a whole routine that I do. In fact, this morning before this podcast, I was up, I think, 3.30 in the morning because we, we record very early. And I was doing my my uh, my routine, which, by the way, is heavily influenced by the Judeo-Christian tradition and by the natural way of the Chinese tradition. I know both traditions. I know them well. And you put them together, and it's a yin and a yang, and that's the secret of well-being. And that's something we'll be talking about as we move forward because it doesn't need to be a secret. Well-being is, is it's time for well-being to be in the public domain, to separate out well-being from health care, to understand how well-being is related to self-governance, how self-governance extends across a huge waterfront from political activity to communal activity, like charity, to health maintenance activity or well-being maintenance activities, which you could say are related to diet and exercise, the air we breathe, the food we eat, this is all part of being an American. We are bequeathed these rights naturally. And all we need to do as American citizens is value the fact that we're Americans. Rebuild our communities. We don't need to fight with anybody. I don't want to fight with anyone. I'm just going to pursue self-governance without conflict. Because our system allows every one of us to enter into this system of self-governance and pursue these natural rights. Everyone can do it. Everyone must do it. And why must we? Look at the results of us giving our self-governance authority over to others who we elect, 
our elected representatives. We're $32 trillion in debt. That's 120% of our gross domestic product. Never in human history has a country ever paid back a debt that exceeded its gross domestic product. We have 800 military bases around the world. 350 golf courses are run by the U.S. military. We have a far-flung imperial empire, no different than the British. We have interfered in the affairs of other countries continuously for the last 75 years. We're violating our own Atlantic Charter. The contradiction must be resolved. We studied together the Atlantic Charter. It highlights the importance of every group to self-determine, to self-govern, and we're interfering. Our security state is interfering in the affairs of other countries. This must end. Our idea that we have to be at war must end. It must end right now because we're on the verge of nuclear war. So I'm coming to you as an American citizen, and I'm asking you to get involved in your local political party. I'm not saying Democrat or Republican. It doesn't matter. It matters that you get involved, that you start to go into the political and practice self-governance. Don't be swayed by the inertia that exists in these parties. Our entry into the political will change the nature of our governance almost overnight. And we need to because the people that are leading us today are leading us into war, into disease, into famine. Nothing about our current political system is working well. If you disagree with me, I want to hear from you. But really everything is coming apart at the seams from my perspective. My opinion, things are getting bad fast. And of course, I've seen things over many decades, so I have a sense of the evolution of this. I have children. I know they're not critical thinkers. They weren't educated the way my generation was educated. I know that their economic opportunities are less than what my economic opportunities are. I know that 25% of the people that own homes in this country are behind on their mortgage payments. I know that car possessions are at an all-time high. We're struggling, and only our participation, you and me, are going, is, that's, that's our only hope. If we keep electing these same people, why would we expect the results to be any different? We have to have a completely new approach to this. So that's what the Professor Penn podcast is about, how we can self-govern for well-being, how do we get into this state of affairs, talking with you about how we can get out of these state of affairs. I'm very optimistic that if we all put our shoulder to the main mast, if we take the time, if we understand the joys of having a community, of caring about each other, about having a spiritual life, about focusing on our personal well-being, and that becomes the central theme of our governance, humanity's well-being. Well-being, not how to control humanity like Herman Kahn was thinking. No, not how to get people hooked on these devices so that they're really ineffective, they're tranquil, like Herman Kahn predicted. No, that's not well-being. 
We need to go back to nature and find our well-being. I do it every day. I know you can do it. It's as simple as taking a walk. So please today, take an hour, go outside, look at the blue skies, look at the green trees, or if it's wintertime, enjoy the white, breathe, walk, feel your big toe. Imagine that your head is pulled up into the sky by a string that comes out the top of your head. Lengthen your spine out. Walk from your hips. Smell the air. Listen to the birds. And you'll be well. It'll be well with you. And then we'll be able to start to turn this thing around. I hope you like this content. Please subscribe. Please click the like button. And I look forward to seeing you soon again. Thank you very much for joining me.